Hello, friend, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, and a best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, and design your dream career. I wrote the U-Turn book and created this podcast to help you reconnect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week, I bring you a guest on with the intention of helping you upgrade your confidence in work and in love. I'm also so excited to say that this episode has been sponsored in part by our friends over at Soul CBD. This is the only CBD company I have come to really trust with my wellness. They have zero THC, meaning you can't get high from their products. They're organically farmed and they're gluten-free. I love sleep and when I don't get it, I feel like my entire day, my entire week, my entire life is thrown off And during these times of stress, I started taking Soul CBD's Sleepy Gummy before bed, and I swear by them. Most nights, all I need is a half of a gummy, and these little babes have put my sleepless nights behind me with one delicious fruity bite. Their unique blend of CBD, CBN, and terpenes helps you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and improve your overall quality of sleep. I always wake up refreshed. It's my new bedtime bestie. So our friends over at Soul CBD, I contacted them and I got a discount code for 15% off your order. Just head on over to ashleystall.com slash soul. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com slash S-O-U-L to access our special page with them. And don't forget to use the code U-Turn at checkout. That's Y-O-U. T-U-R-N. Now let's get in to this week's episode. Hey, U-Turners, this is Ash here. And I don't know if you've noticed every now and again, we love to spotlight a podcaster out there that we think is just doing amazing work. And so this week, I wanted to do a spotlight on Chase Tuning, who is the host of Ever Forward Radio, the podcast. This show is just really awesome because you learn how to propel your life forward and like Chase says, ever forward. As a host, he's really special. He's able to share his personal experiences and those of his guests in a way that really help listeners understand each episode topic. Uh, So if you're looking just to feel like that word forward in your life, like you're moving more forward, check out his show, check out Ever Forward Radio, and he provided one episode to us that was one of his favorites, and it's about how to take risks even when you fail. Uh, So I find that this episode about failure is so powerful and inspiring, and um, Chase is just doing amazing things. So Thanks again at Ever Forward Radio for sharing this podcast episode with the U-Turn community, and I uh, hope you all enjoy. Hi, I'm Sue Kenderson Cassidy, and I'm the author of the new book, Choose Possibility. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about how you rethink risk in order to thrive. Welcome back, everyone. This is your number one source for inspiring content from people who are putting a purpose to their passion and truly living a life ever forward conversations and messages that will take your fitness, nutrition, and mindset to the next level. I am your host, Chase Tuning. This is Ever Forward Radio.
Welcome, 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 welcome back to Everford Radio, my friend. Thank you so much for tuning in with me here today. There are literally millions and millions of podcasts out there that you could be tuning into, but you know what? You're here right now and you have tuned in to a phenomenal piece of content, a conversation with Sukinder Singh Cassidy, where we are going to be diving into busting risk-taking myths and magnifying our impact as humans entrepreneurs, and for all my other CEOs out there. So listen, have you ever felt like you've made the wrong career choice? I know I've been there. I remember getting started early in my career as a health coach. I was really passionate about what I did, but I didn't quite know if that was what I wanted to do full time, long term, or really just on that particular path. It doesn't always have to be not this job, but it could just be not this organization, not this company, right? There are a lot of different kind of feelings when it comes to what it feels like to make the right or wrong career choice. Or maybe have you been waiting for the right time or the best opportunity to come along so you can take the leap towards your dream job, your dream life? Well, author entrepreneur and CEO. So Kinder Singh Cassidy is here today and she has a unique perspective to share with you if you are maybe afraid of making the wrong career choice or have an unhealthy relationship with risk in general, a very important concept here. So Kinder says that, quote, even when we think we have a failure from which we'll never recover, there's still another move. There's still five more choices to be made, in fact. So listen, my friend, your potential for receiving life's rewards is not limited. So don't get caught up in the one thing that might make you successful in life. Get committed to the process. It is the process over the prize every time. I promise you, put progress over perfection and turn risks into opportunities. This is your time. This is the conversation. This is the episode to help you choose possibility. And we're here to to discuss your new book, Choose Possibility, Take Risk and Thrive Even When You Fail. And I'm really excited to talk to you about a lot of things, but Mm -hmm. especially failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that is one of the biggest tie-ins as I was kind of going through you and your work of Mm -hmm. just what what I say when I mean what I mean when I say live a life ever forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was sharing with you a little bit of the backstory as well. Sometimes life throws you the biggest failures or the biggest curveballs or the biggest pains. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can choose to look at it as here's a gift, mm-hmm. there has to be a gift in it. Um, then that's the ultimate win. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I really love how you kicked off the book of th- the first thing that caught my attention was the risk taking myths that scare us. What do you mean by that? We're taking risk. You kind of, redefine. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. And I do love the name of, uh, the podcast. It's very cool. Um, well, when I say the myth risk, myth taking risks that scare us, I think most people imagine that risk is this binary choice, Mm. right? We look at the world's biggest risk takers and we think, well, in order to succeed greatly, you must take a mighty risk. And so on the one hand, that sounds really inspirational, right? You're like, okay, take a mighty risk. But if you think about how inaccessible that is, because what you imagine is that risk itself must be a choice that's so great that six, like large reward is the one possibility, but then abject failure must surely be the other, right? It's, it's either or. It's either or. So yeah. people think of it as a binary choice. And, in, and I think when we have that mindset about risk, this is one of the biggest myths. I call it the myth of the single choice. 
then you put a lot of pressure on yourself to be, make a perfect choice, right? Because if you imagine that the outcome is binary and large, um, then you might never take it. And instead, and I don't know, this has been the result of obviously my own career, and I'm sure you have many stories that can relate. Instead, I feel like don't overweight, like the idea that you need to overweight the first choice to me is the craziness. Because in my own lifetime, it's been, I don't know, a hundred choices before I got a reward, maybe a thousand. Or I got the reward I originally expected or something different, you know, but let's call it something meaningful. Right. Right. Of of significant size that others would point to and say, wow, so you could have got a reward from that. Um, So when you know that there's a hundred or a thousand choices, this, all this weight on the first choice may be a false positive, right? You think like, if I choose perfectly, I'm going to be successful. But I'm like, well, what if it's what you do in the other 99 chances at bat? Right, yeah. Um, so I think that that myth that, uh, one of the singular myths is this myth of the single choice. And then I think there are all sorts of adjacent myths to that. Um, there's another one that I think of and I, and I talk about in the book called the myth of risk and reward. Mm-hmm. We think that surely risk and reward are proportional. Small risk, small reward. Big risk, big reward. Very linear, right? Like you can sort of map them on a, on a grid. Um, and then once again, if I look back on my own career, there were small things that had big outcomes, big risks that quite frankly were not big failures or big successes. Mm-hmm. Um, and small risks that turned into, as I said, like, you know, something extraordinary, big failures that fail to topple me. And so this idea that risk and reward is linear on any single on mm-hmm. any single risk is going to lead to the singular reward you imagine, I think is another big myth that holds people back. Can you maybe take us back to a moment in your many careers, uh, your, your <laughs> yes. life experience yes. of a, a reward, a success, mm-hmm. or a failure that in your mind at that moment you thought was yes, this is going to be my defining moment, this is the biggest success, mm-hmm. or the opposite, this sure. is going to completely ruin me. And maybe it surprised you. Yes. Well, I think you're, I think you're hitting on this pressure we all put on ourselves. So uh, as you said, I've had a few different chapters in my career, mm-hmm. uh, but one big chapter was as an executive at Google. And so I joined Google in 2003 to build first their local and maps business, and then to build their international business, which I scaled to a multi-billion dollar business. And so... <laughs> so in <laughs> 2008 or t- 2008, I was starting to think about what was next. Mm-hmm. And it was clear I was never going to be the CEO of Google. I mean, as high up as I was, Google was always going to be run by a product leader, an engineer. And in fact, you know, those uh, a, a product leader succeeded Larry and Sergey. And so I was sort of at the pinnacle of my career. And I was like, I'm going to go be a CEO or, st- or start a new company. And I'm instead of going to something established, because I never knew, like, was it Google or was it me? <laughs> like, fair so, point, fair point. So I was yeah. like, and I had been an entrepreneur before, so I wanted to go and run something entrepreneurial again. I startup. need to know, is this correlation or causation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was like, maybe I'm not nearly as good as people think I am. <laughs> um, and so I started thinking about what was next, and I looked at a bunch of e-commerce startups, mm-hmm. and I wanted to move into e-commerce because I thought e-commerce was going to go through another wave of innovation. You know, at that point, like... The best of e-commerce was like low prices, fast shipping. There was no like lifestyle e-commerce. There's no inspiration in commerce, right? So I could see this was starting to unfold. I did all my due diligence. First of all, I quit Google um, and went to park myself at a venture capitalist firm. I studied the landscape. Which is a feat in and of itself, by the way. I I think who (laughs) leaves Google to like, oh, I think I can find something better or different. You know, I know, right? I mean, it's a risk. It's a risk. That is right? risk and bravery too. I well, think. it's nice of you to say. Yeah. We'll see. You'll hear how the story turns out. <laughs> so, so I tried to be very calculated in my choices. I picked e-commerce. I went to a venture capitalist firm to study all the available companies. A certain company had been calling on me for two and a half years, and I really loved what they did. A company called Polyvore, which was like an early Pinterest-like player. Okay. 
with a rock star engineering team. I knew the board members. I knew the investors. And so ultimately, I chose to go to Polyvore. And I remember I wrote an op-ed about, I think on Fortune, about like becoming a CEO of a startup again and how afraid I was. But I didn't. I was willing to take the ego risk and obviously financial risk to do that. And I took that leap and it was very studied. Even though it was a startup, I knew the volatility I was going to be facing. And six months later, I was out. I mean, I was flat on my face out. Uh, the founder wow. and I both wanted to run the company. I think he thought he wanted a CEO. And it turns out that once I was in the seat, he didn't really like that idea as much. Care about I, what you asked for kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I found out that I was maybe in the seat with somebody whose values were not similar to mine. We had very mm-hmm. different leadership styles. And at month six, you know, the board faced a choice on who to pick to run, keep running the company. And they chose him. And so, you know, keep in mind, I had left a $2 billion plus business. I was managing 2,000 people. I was like one of the most senior women and leaders overall at Google. I'd come to this 10-person startup. Yeah. And I fail in my first CEO job. So to wow. your point, I really did think that was it. I really thought that – and remember, going in, I think this is this is the startup that defines me. This is the thing that makes me a successful CEO. I'm going to grow this, and I'm going to prove to myself and everyone else – that reminds um, me of a uh, Silicon yeah. Valley. Did you watch that show? Yes, I watched, <laughs> I've watched all of them. Um, but you know, it makes me think like this is gonna be my defining moment yeah. again, right? Post Google. And not only is it not my defining moment, then I worry it's my defining moment the other way that I am just a failure. Wow. Um, and so people always sort of, I mean, I talk about that story in the book, but I think there are two things that, that, that came from that for me. First of all, I clearly thought I was looking for the perfect choice. I was pretty calculated in my risk taking, and I look back on that. And we'd say, okay, that was a failure, right? But then when calculated 10 years later, let's see, I left Google. I wanted to be a CEO. Okay, I became a CEO. I wanted to be in the e-commerce field. Okay, I ended up in e-commerce. Um, I picked a specific company. That was a failure. But 10 years later, I became an e-commerce investor because of that experience. I got to run StubHub because of that experience. I joined multiple boards because of that experience. And I created wealth, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of those things happened, but only as a result of five or six more choices. Yeah. And so I feel like that is in that is the quintessential point in the book, which is even when we think that we have a failure from which we'll never recover, there is still another move. There is still five more choices to be made. Yeah. Um, and in my case, you know, a very nonlinear relationship between risk and reward. If you looked at that decision to leave Google at year one. Mm, not a success. <laughs> You're two, maybe yeah. not. You're three, maybe not. Uh-huh. You're four, starting to be, you know. <laughs> um, and so I think that's what I mean by sort of this, you have many choices to, to yeah. a single reward. And, and I can hear it in, in even how you describe it now. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. hindsight is great and all that. But uh, I'm hearing your, your mindset to use these key words of because of, because of, because of. Yeah. And I think it accurately describes what you're saying of it's not binary. It's not if then, it's not if then, yes. it's mm-hmm. because of. And if yes. we can, if I'm hearing you correctly, mm-hmm. kind of adopt that looking in mm-hmm. failure yes. or looking in success, it's okay, this happened because of this and, mm-hmm. and or because of this, I get to or I'm yes. moving on instead of if then. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's. I, I think that's fair. I think because of, well, first of all, I think because of, I like that term in that it forces you to look back and take the learning from whatever this, you know, from whatever it is. Um, And I I think that is the point of being like, you know, when I say to people, hey, take more risk, I'm not Mm. saying be rash and take risk. I'm saying become a calculated risk taker. And, you know, you're not going to win every single risk you take. Like it's just virtually impossible if you have a growth mindset Mm -hmm. and you're always trying something new that you haven't done before that you will have 100% success. It's just, it's not possible. What is possible is to be calculated. Mm. 
to look at the variables that go in any equation, get comfortable making a decision, because you and I both know that's half the battle. Then the other half of the battle is once you've made the decision, what other risks are you going to take to make the decision that you just took be an impactful one. I call that execution risk. <laughs> you know, Once you've made the decision, unfortunately, you're not done. Then you have to like make five more decisions to get the most out of the risk at you just least, took. At, at least, least, maybe yeah. 10, maybe 100, right? Um, but in all of those ways, you can be calculated. And I think because of, as a term, helps you understand why something worked or didn't in order yeah. to become a better risk taker. I agree. I agree. And that kind of leads me into another um, section that I wrote down here or marked was uh, in calculating risk, you know, calculating anything, we kind of then attach a timeline to it. Mm -hmm. And you have this great quote in here uh, about first create your own timeline for Mm -hmm. discovery instead of reacting to Mm -hmm. everyone else's schedule, Mm -hmm. which is really difficult because a lot of your work in the book and a lot Mm -hmm. of your history Mm -hmm. is, is in corporate world is in, I'm working with somebody else for somebody else and not so much. This is my baby, my business. So Mm -hmm. the timelines are kind of established for you. Mm -hmm. Timelines are things maybe that you're going to be butting your head up against most Mm -hmm. in order to really persevere in this endeavor or succeed or not. So then how can we effectively create our own timeline for discovery and how can we get off of somebody else's timeline? Yeah. Well, I think there are um, a couple of things going on there. First of all, just, you know, I'm always in favor of having a timeline because when we try and make decisions with no timeline, then we we sort of may risk not deciding anything. And it's like an eventually thing. It's an eventually thing, yeah. and we both know. There's that no the, accountability. Yes. And then thing, the conditions around us are always changing, right? So we think there's no cost to making no decision. Mm-hmm. But the cost of stasis is often that the situation you thought was under your control is not. Yeah. The, uh, something that you thought you had time to decide, you don't. Something, you know, it gets decided for you. Mm-hmm. So I'm always a favor, in favor of having a timeline. But the point I make in the book about how do you take control of your own timeline, often the pressure we feel to make a decision is coming from one of two things. Like when we feel like, number one, it's self-inflicted. We're like, we're not growing as fast as we should. That's a good kind of pressure. So then you set a time bound, sort of said like, hey, in the next three years, I'd like to achieve X, mm-hmm. right? So that's a good kind of time bounding because then you'll make a decision if you have a, a time frame. But when other times when time is, uh, when sort of there's a timeline enforced on us, it's somebody else's because somebody else is saying like, well, do you want this or do you not want this? And then we have to decide but we're deciding in a vacuum. We're deciding from a choice of one. Ah, so yeah, the places yeah. I think that like time is for you to measure and identify is like if it's your own sort of self, like, hey, within this time, I'm going to evaluate my choices. Great. When the time is like, you know, somebody has asked me to do this, I must respond. And then you choose from like just in response to that person. I'm like, well, wait, you need to just stop for a moment and say, yeah. I, I understand, Chase, that you'd like me to do this. How about I need... 10 days, mm-hmm. a week, three months, and like at least push back on the timeline enough to discover all of the choices available to you. Mm-hmm. So that's the one place where I feel strongly that we can create a timeline for ourselves. Even when somebody offers you a job, you can say, in what time frame do you need to decide? Exactly. And I think we fail to ask that question because we sort of assume that we need to be so responsive to other people. And I'm always a fan of not being entitled and not wasting an opportunity if somebody gives it to you. But I'm also a fan of just bounding it so that you have enough time to get all the facts you need to while still being responsive to someone else. So that's what I mean. Yeah, I think that really does kind of, it's like an extension of what you are talking about earlier of the whole yes. binary aspect. Yes. Binary is like, it's outdated. Like, or yes. it's, it's this construct that was created real or not mm-hmm. uh, for, for success in yes. the professional world. Mm-hmm. That is something that I have actually been introducing personally and professionally yep. um, for quite a while now is 
is recognizing that I don't have to respond to this right here, right now. I don't have to say yes or no. I don't have to agree or disagree, but just it's often that self-inflicted, I have to decide right now or else this happens or it doesn't. Doesn't happen, yes. And sometimes, one last thing that I think is important Sometimes we feel like we need to respond because we ourselves are uncomfortable with uncertainty. Oh, yes. Right? Like yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah. like even research points yeah. to the fact that sometimes people want to make a choice because sitting in discomfort with uncertainty is hard, right? And so it's weird because I say, hey, take risks. But I'm also like, you have to live in uncertainty in yeah. order to uncover all the opportunities for a little bit. And that's okay. It can be a risk for you. Sometimes yes. A risk for you could be not doing something. Yes. It could be, you could take a risk on your normal behavior by yes. just inserting a pause saying, Hey, you got it to yourself. Hey, Chase, take 24 hours or Hey, you, you know, whoever it. you're talking to, Hey, let me get back to you in 24 hours. Let me get back to you more times than not. I've been floored at they're like, okay, yeah, cool. Great. Or, you know, Hey, let's you know take extra time kind of yep. thing. And it just allows breathing room yes. to make more of a calculated risk in your favor. You got it. Yeah. So this is like, it's so interesting because I think our relationship with risk, to your point, it's like very reactive. And I think there's this opportunity to have a proactive relationship with, uh, I love this phrase from my, I have an executive coach. He once told me like, you know, Sukinder, like meet your inner risk manager. Like we Uh, had to have a very uh, immature relationship with our inner risk manager. Right. And so like, so I think if you're in a mature, proactive relationship, you're in a risk manager, like, okay, I'm going to decide within some time frame, but I'm going to uncover my choices to your point. For some people, taking a beat is the risk. Seriously. For other people, yeah. <laughs> like for yeah. other people, moving into any kind of action is the risk. Exactly. Does that make sense? But either way, we want to be calculated and have a framework. Um, and a framework doesn't eradicate the risk of failure by any means, but it lets us do that because of take mm. the learning, you know, become more decisive. Um, just by having like you know work through all of the different scenarios, and then we move. I agree. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of other people, mm-hmm. it's like it's almost like you wrote a book on all this. And it just flows <laughs> so naturally. Um, other people, surrounding yourself with other people, the mm-hmm. right people, mm-hmm. I give 80% credit to mm-hmm. any marker of success in my life, mm-hmm. personally, professionally, financially, um, quantitative or qualitative. The rest of it is on us. We have mm-hmm. to do the work. But yes. environment and people, I, I think, is my main source of drive and what I attribute the most success to. And I think a lot of people uh, you know, who we look to as successful mm-hmm. would agree. I love this part that you have down here. Um, you said that that didn't matter. You're talking about uh, a previous experience with mm-hmm. uh, Sky and Open TV. And I'll yeah. make sure to list all the book and everything for everybody in the show notes. But you said that you succeeded because I surrounded myself with people I respected and from whom I could learn while also thriving in the culture that they created. What I hear in that is you were in a place of, of growth Mm -hmm. that you were, you felt free and safe and secure enough to kind of like to contribute Mm -hmm. and out of your own, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, musings, but also at the same time you had people that, that you respected and kind of provided a a safe container. Mm -hmm. How can we create that safe container for us? How can we live and thrive and make these calculated risks and act in our own like accord, but also create space and how do we even know we're in the right space with the right people to kind of like Mm -hmm. deflect that or reflect that? Yeah. It's a, it's a great question because you're right. I, I often think that my career like yours is, is, um, because of my good fortune and increasingly looking to work with people, you know, who, who, as you said, allowed me to thrive. So first and foremost, I think like, what do you extract from that? 
you want to go to a place where I would say where people have different skills, they're diverse skills, but compare, but, but very compatible values. Right. Uh So I think that like, when we say like, what do great people look like? They're people who offer us learning that's different from what we, we have, but whose value system makes us feel included, welcome, that we're in a fair environment, Mm -hmm. fair matters, Mm -hmm. as you know, where our work can shine and where we feel safe to do our best work. And quite frankly, when we feel safe to do our best work, we're also safe to take risk, right? Yeah. I mean, so there's and, and like- And you want to give more too. And you want to give more. Yeah. You want to contribute more. You want to have an impact, right? So so it's this weird combination. And I say it like every leader I've ever worked for that I consider tremendous, including my own inspiration was my dad, which I talk about in the book, um, are people whose um, skill sets and style was actually not the same as mine in some, in some ways, pretty diverse. So I, I would always learn from them. I'd be like, wow, that's what it looks like to be patient. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to allow somebody to finish a sentence. Oh, that's what it looks like to, you know, hmm. you know, have like, you know, a less intense personality that like, you know, but, but in the best way. Right. Yeah. And then, so I felt like I could show up and be my most aggressive self and they were different and I could learn something from them about how to, you know, manage my own, you know, pieces of work while still like being able to thrive. But number two, when I say our value systems were the same, I knew every day they woke up transparently with authenticity, with candor, with some set of lived experiences that they modeled and who they were as leaders every day that I could be like, yes, like, you know, whether or not you're my buddy, I really don't care. I just know that how you kind of lead I have a lot of respect for, right? Like what your value system is. So I think the most important thing when we look to other situations is to find ourselves, find for ourselves people whose values fit our own and really who, um, when I, and who are pretty diverse. So I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a book called Super Bosses mm-hmm. that I reference in the book. And it, it actually looks at the research around who super bosses are, people who attract and retain the best talent. Mm-hmm. And the reality is they all look really different. They're not all friendly. They're not all extroverts. They're not all people who ask us, you know, and know the names of all our children. <laughs> That's actually, They actually look remarkably diverse. But what uh-huh. they're very good at is they're very good at being people from whom you can learn, who you can apprentice under, and who attract themselves mm-hmm. talent. Mm-hmm. They're like talent magnets. Um, so I think there's something, you know, pretty magical about looking for that. And certainly my career when I've thrived, yeah. it's been in those conditions. And the two times I can point to in my career where I went awry, including the, the experience mm. I talked about going to Polyvore, it's not even about the struggle with the board or whatever. It's that I was in the boat with a founder, you know, effectively who had a lot of control in the company. Yeah whose values in mind just weren't similar. Doesn't matter how well matched we were IQ wise, right? Doesn't it just like our styles of operating and what we valued in how we operated was different. So I kind of have a follow up slightly devil's advocate question to that. Sure, please. Do you think, is it possible to be in a professional environment, to be in a working relationship somehow, some way and fairly evaluate, Hey, our working relationship Mm -hmm. There's no denying what we say we are going to do, we do. And mm-hmm. we, we crush it. We're the best at it. Yeah. We're growing. We're scaling all these things. But I don't align with your values. Mm-hmm. Is it possible? Yes. Is it possible for that to happen? Is it possible for us to to maintain that? Yeah. So first of all, I think it is possible to have fun and and 
do work that's creative, even with somebody who doesn't share your underlying values. Is that possible? Yes. Let's mm. talk about the environments in which that's possible. Yeah, please. Um, when there's a business with tailwinds, when things are growing really fast, when you're having fun, like, you know, you all know this, that like, let's say you wake up every day with a boss who doesn't share your values, mm. but you have a peer group that you love to go to work with every day and you have two, yeah, three, four people. Yes. I, I know back. many people who mm. can, right? You can go to work and find joy in the work. You can find joy in the growth. You can find joy with one or two comrades and you two bitch about everybody else. Like, <laughs> Right? So it Truly, is possible yeah. when boats are rising yeah. and you have enough people with who you have allyship that you can go to work and, and still reap the rewards. Mm. So it's not nearly so unfor- unfortunately um, clearly fixed. And I think you and I would agree we know – most people we know live in some variation of that condition. They don't yeah. wake up and say every day works great or sure. everybody at work aligns with my values, what have you, right? Um, so I think it is possible over the short or medium term defined as three, four, or five years to do that. Mm-hmm. I think over the long term, whether you're at your best and whether you're at your peak performance is a different question. So yeah, you can grow without those yeah. conditions. I think it's about striving to have everything kind of yeah, it's about it's about like coming with your B B plus game mm. and it being good enough and coming with your A game. Or even like, you know, you can be A in a B environment. That's also true. Right. And and maybe the one silver lining there is let's say you're in a place where maybe your values don't fully align with where you are, but you are having an impact every day on the people who work with you. You are having an impact on the business. Like when we are having an impact you know, we can stay longer in yeah. something. Does that make sense? I, I raised my hand to that. I was going to share with you. Um, it's so funny you said like that three to five year period. Yeah, yeah, sure. That absolutely was my experience mm-hmm. at my last regular job. Yes. Um, I was there like almost four years and you know, started off in one position, worked my way up, wound up running the department. And yep. I reached this point, my last was about like a year-ish, mm-hmm. where what I did I absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. I loved the team that I oversaw and managed. Mm -hmm. I loved working. um, It was a concierge medical practice. I loved my patients. Oh, cool. Um, And I I was a health coach and I managed a team of up to like nine other coaches, Mm -hmm. nine other offices all up and down the East Coast. And I ran our wellness department. Mm -hmm. And that last year, it was almost measurable Mm -hmm. week by week, month by month of the scale being tipped more in my joy and my fulfill- fulfillment and the values that I have with my coworkers, yes. my subordinates, my, Your customers. my customers, my clients began to finally kind of take back seat to the rest of the values and operations. Yep. And that's when I reached my moment of, I have to develop my exit strategy. Yes. And that's you what hit I did. it, right? Yeah. So like like most organizations have microclimates. Yeah. So to be clear, like you can find a microclimate to thrive if you are doing great work. So Sub, like your impact somewhere is like a good substitute for how long you'll stay, right? It's just that at the point at which you feel like your own impact is diminishing mm-hmm. and the wider organizational culture or values or whatever starts to hit you, then you have a double whammy, right? I love when that. You're having, when you can have impact, you can stay for a while. That's true. It's like the feeling of not being able to have impact when all of these things start to become an issue, right? You start to notice the lack of alignment. So I think like... I don't think we, I'm not suggesting nirvana to anybody. I'm like, yes, you know, I would put the people ahead of the what, but we always strive to do, you know, work we enjoy with great mm, people. Of course. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you end up in one of the two situations. Maybe you end up with a great person, but you're not enjoying your work. Maybe you end up doing great work to your point of work you enjoy, but 
you could take or leave, you know, the value yeah, the system and like, it, yeah. yeah, the rest of it. But I think mostly we want to be moving towards maximizing our impact. Yeah. And so I think if you can mostly find impact, you'll likely stay somewhere, you know, yeah. but at the point at which like that climate, those values, whatever are impacting your impact, mm. then all of a sudden I think it's, you start to realize like, and you've tried to figure out what's out of alignment here. Is it the who or is it the what? Yeah. So to that, I, uh, I'll follow up and say, and of course I'm a little bit biased now because yes. I've been an entrepreneur running my yeah. business for yeah. pushing five years now. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, I'm on the other side of the fence. Yes. And a big part of me believes that it is very, very difficult. I don't know if I'll say impossible to maximize our impact mm-hmm. on, in our profession, in our immediate world or in the world, mm-hmm. unless we are doing something on our own. Mm. How do you feel about that? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I don't know. You're appealing to the entrepreneurial part of me. I tell other, I, well, let's put it this way. I, what I would, I would say it slightly differently. Mm. I feel like um, it is impossible to thrive over the long term without feeling like an owner. So whether you actually have to be an owner to there feel like is. an owner, uh-huh. I'm like the money, I'm like the you. money point is you have to feel like an owner, right? Yes. So people who create great environments make mm. people feel like owners. Does mm. that make sense? Mm. So Absolutely. like you, without being an entrepreneur, if you feel like an owner, yeah. you will stick around. If and I would have felt point, like that, I, 90 49 or 51% of me, I don't know right now, but yeah. I think I would have stayed with that company or at least would have stayed longer yes. if I had that sense of ownership and kind of involvement yeah. really. Yeah. Now, now look, um, and I'm an entrepreneur. So of course I believe in being a literal owner because I feel like you create more wealth, you know, mm. by being an owner, an owner of equity, yeah. what have you right now. It has a lot more volatility. You and I both know that. Right. Um, but it has this feeling every day of like moral authority where you wake up and mm. you know, you know that your sins are your own. You know that, you know, <laughs> right, like you're rightly or wrongly, you're trying to create a system in which your own values yeah. are, you know, are manifesting. Absolutely. So, so I believe that's all the upside of ownership. But I think that it's also a cop out to say, uh, don't take this the wrong way. It's also a cop out to say like, well, gosh, I went to my organization. And I didn't feel like an owner. So I, I headed out in which case I'd be like, okay, well, what are you doing to be an owner? <laughs> you know, like it's not all on your leaders or your organization. Oh, I right? agree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a sense of radical self-responsibility you have to, whether you, you agree with have. or not, yes. you have to have, or else, I mean, it's a totally unfair um, evaluation. But yeah, paradigm, yeah. right? So obviously you want to be in environments where people can create a structure in which you feel like an owner, whether that's a financial structure, whether that's like space to own, right? Which is often what we need, like mm. space to author, space to own. Um, and then, of course, like I said, if you want to take it to the final degree and actually literally start and own, I'm yeah. all for it. Yeah. I just always say to people, it's a different level of risk. And yeah. so, you know, on your risk continuum, you have to decide where you are in being a, you know, a physical owner of your own company versus an owner of a platform that somebody else has started that you mm-hmm. can author on. But I think that authorship is kind of this key question. right? Yeah. And um I, that was kind of the next big section that I wanted to get to. But before we do, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I got some some notes here. Mm-hmm. Before we do, we've been kind of talking a lot about how awesome you are and your history and your expertise. Um, can we please, can we go back a little bit and sure. you know give uh, a sense of understanding to the audience of like really, where did you come from with all of this? Sure, sure. And um, I know, you know, I... I always feel uncomfortable with people like, you're so awesome. I'm like, I'm not sure that that's true. Your experience is profound. No. Well, that's, that's, that's nice of you to say. Um, but I think like my origin story and I think, you know, you have an audience that would appreciate because you think about your whole life, not just Mm. your business Mm. life. Right. Um, I was born in East Africa to two Indian parents who are both doctors. 
Um, and my parents immigrated late in their life to Canada and started over a medical practice. And nobody would think of that as particularly, um, I don't think people think of being a doctor is particularly risky, right? I would say my parents took one big risk to move and sure, restart yeah. their life. Yeah. You know, they had to recertify. They like went back to like a lower standard of living and all those things to get to move to Canada and give us an education. But the thing that I believe is, you know, important about my upbringing um, is first and foremost, my parents lived their vocation. So they, like I saw the example that who you are and what you do for- and the values. Yes. Yeah. Who you are, what your values are, and what you do for a living are all intertwined. They was like, I never saw the example that like, here's my career, here's my life. Does that make sense? Like my parents, yeah. how they wanted to give to the world was manifested through their profession and through business. And it was also their life's purpose. So I definitely grew up with this idea that, and I'm pretty sure, like I'm, like I, I am, I'm quite certain that if I have a purpose in my life to give back to the world or through impact, it will happen through business. Mm. I'm good with it. I don't need to like, I don't need it to be yeah. something. I'm like, that's okay. That's how I'm meant how to express myself. How amazing is that myself, to know right? that though, by the way? Yeah, but that is, yeah. that is the gift of my parents. And then I think the second um, thing about my upbringing, I grew up in a small town in, in Ontario, Canada, where my parents immigrated to. I would say like my dad taught me that possibility was in small acts as much as big, right? He was an entrepreneur as much as he was a doctor. He loved buying stocks. He loved thinking about his business. He trained us to do his taxes. And so I'm like, <laughs> people think of like, you know, entrepreneurship is this mythical thing. You know, that, that, that also exists. Like, yeah. how did you start a company? How did you do it? And I'm like, my dad woke up every day and he went to work and he had profits and losses and he showed me his books and, you know, and he dreamed big of having a walk-in medical clinic and he also did just very mundane things. Right? He picked every tasks day. and showed up every day for them. You got it, right? Yeah. So possibilities in the mundane and, and in small acts and possibilities in big acts. So this idea that like, you know, if you can't go big, don't do it at all. I'm like, nobody in the world knows who my father is. But like by far, I was like, I learned all my lessons on business and on possibility from him. And so I think that's the part of my, you know, of my origin that I look to and I'm like, oh, when people like, I understand that I saw makership for my father, like mm. makership, like mm -hmm. we author, we make, sometimes making is small, sometimes making is big, <laughs> you know, it's like, but we make. I love that. It, yeah. re it reminds me, I was telling you a lot of the background of, of Ever Ford and, and my mm. father and so yes. that really reminds me a lot. And so I know I'm in, I'm even in better company now. Thank you for <laughs> yes, that. Yes. I'm sure we have similar stories to tell of our yeah. dads. Uh, so many times uh, I can think back to, uh, you know, like I said, he was in the military and mm -hmm. then after he got out, uh, he wound up going into business for himself as well. So mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, I, I can vividly recall um, the the super sexy, glamorous tasks of like <laughs> hosing out trash cans there and, you in go. the restaurant. Exactly. And, and, you know, but then, then at the front of the house, like the glitz and the glam and like welcoming exactly. people into our steakhouse and um, just like the freeness of it all. But no matter what, it was the same act. It was the, it was same, the act. same act. It just That's looked exactly differently. Right. Well, you're I you're hitting a theme I love, right? It's big and small. Mm. It's dirty and clean. It's glamorous and completely unsexy. Yeah. Both are through. Like yeah. I don't think you can be a pursuer of possibility if you only want to pursue the perfect possibility, the biggest opportunity, the best opportunity. I'm like, ah, yeah. it's both, right? You get your yeah. hands dirty, <laughs> and then you also yeah. experience these kind of profound moments of like joy and wow, I couldn't believe that just happened. You know, Truly. both are true. Uh, um, well, that kind of leads me to the next point here. You, you talk about becoming an author. Um, whatever the case, we can exercise authorship and magnify our impact, which is what mm -hmm. we've been talking about a lot of. Uh, if we're willing to take a small risk, 
mm-hmm. let go of our fear of looking stupid, what we've described as ego risk, mm-hmm. and have the courage to speak up, which I'm sure you love just hearing your own words read back to you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that was, I remember that for sure. <laughs> but that really stood out to me. And, and I think it kind of like mm-hmm. describes what we were just talking about. But I would love to hear what do you really mean and how can we develop the courage to speak up and well, become an author? Yeah, well, you're, you're, uh, we talked about this idea of authorship. It's interesting because, as I said, it's sometimes I find it ironic that we gear ourselves up to make a big choice. And then all of a sudden we discover on the other side, like, okay, now we actually need to make that choice successful, <laughs> which means we need to make a bunch more choices, right? Like, like I said, there's like, there's a risk to make a big decision yeah. and there's what I call execution risk, is which it, is like, oh shit, I just made I this big decision. Oh shit, I took a step. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh shit, yeah. I started a business. Yeah. Oh shit, now I have to make 10, you know, yeah. take 10 more risks to make that business successful. So <sighs> in that, in that, like, in that work that I call execution work, I talk about being an author because I'm like, I have this I have this thesis in my head or this formula and then the authorship will relate to it that says, okay, we we take a risk, we want the big reward, but between us and the big reward is a series of choices. And every time we make a choice, we want to have impact, right? And you know that if you pile up enough impacts, you'll get the big reward, right? And even if you fail to get the big reward, if you've had a bunch of impacts, you can remix all those impacts and find a new career. You can find a way to like make something if you've had enough impact. Absolutely. So I always say to people like before you aim for the success, aim for impact. And I and so when you're like, what do you mean impact? I'm like, well, you have to go to work every day and do things that are more likely than not to produce more impact. One of those things is being an author. And so people are like, what do you mean by being an author? I'm like, well, we're all authors. You have an original idea. You had an original idea and you manifested a podcast. Mm-hmm. Let's say I have an original idea in the office, but I'm too afraid to voice it because I think I'm going to look stupid. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're sitting in a meeting and thinking like, I have this great idea. I'm not going to say anything. I'm like, how are you going to advance the ball? Yeah, like yeah. you don't advance a conversation. You don't advance the idea. Mm-hmm. You don't get it in execution. So I'm say to people, if you have, if you want to be an author, most people have original ideas, right? And that original idea could literally be a different way of doing something. I'm not talking about big, you know, company inventing yeah. ideas, but we don't speak because we think that we'll look stupid. I call that ego risk. And I'm like, well, it's hard to wake up every day and have more impact at work if you worry about looking stupid because the ball gets advanced. Things advance faster when people are willing to put their ideas on the table, when people are willing to look stupid, yeah. when people are like, that's how you have more impact, right? There are many ways to have more impact, like six, there's seven, eight, nine, ten different ways to have more impact at work. But one of the big ones, I think, is to be an author. And I think that is made better by our previous topic about your, your community. Yes. I think, and I can personally speak, I'm sure you can too, yeah. that the fear and the mm. ego risk doesn't fully go away. Maybe it does for mm-hmm. some people, but it is way more dissolved when you're in an environment that the values and the work are in alignment and there is that support system and respect. You got it. Yeah. It's true. I mean, it's, it's so perfect funny. storm almost. Yeah, yeah, it is. Right. And that's when you find yourself in alignment and yeah. you can do your best work and have more impact because you are absolutely right. I can say to people like, be an author, be a truth teller, mm. ask great questions. And people say, well, what if it's not safe at my workplace yeah, to do yeah. so? So I think this idea of safety at work is entirely correlated to taking risk. Right. And so, but but there are two things that are true. If it's all in your head and you don't know, you have to try. And you're going to learn something about your workplace when you try, right? Um, if you don't know how that's going to be received, well, you're not going to know if, unless you try. And like, let's agree, most, most things you try are not going to be like death-defining, right? You say yeah. something and it's not well-received. Like, maybe that's the person, maybe that's the situation. You're going to be okay. You're like, going to be okay. The point on. is, yeah, yeah the point, yeah. Like, right? Like, you're, the world's not going to come tumbling down on you. But I completely appreciate and agree with um, particularly because, you know, I do a lot of work in diversity and inclusion. Um, I completely agree with 
you have to be in an environment where it feels safe to take risk. And we know that's true when we find people whose value systems or the way they act tells us something about their value system that mirrors our own. And you're so spot on about it. It doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel for some of these things to actually stick. It just, it takes more courage. How can I say this? I think sometimes it takes more courage than volition or even belief in your idea Mm -hmm. for it to actually play out in your favor. Yes, and I agree with that's right. It reminds me right. of, uh, I recently uh, read, I think I was late to the game on this book, um, mm-hmm. Originals. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. It was Adam Grant. I think. Yes, Adam, yes. Yeah, and it just some of the ideas that I read in that mm-hmm. and just the the consistency that people had. And it was more of that that fight, that internal fight with themselves of this is a good idea or it's a bad idea or yes. I'm, I'm not pitching it to the right person or I, I got to get transferred job location. Some of the crazy shit that happened to these people, mm-hmm. but it was the consistency in believing that just something inside of them was just, no, I, I need to voice this. I need to voice this. And then it just happened. Yeah. It's well, I think you're, I think you're hitting this point about voicing, you know, like giving voice to like our ideas or what we're thinking. It's such a critical part of this. And Huge. I, yeah, I, yeah, I hesitate, you know, I don't want people to think from that, Oh my God, I need to be an extrovert. That's not the point. The point is, you know, when you have a thought or idea that you believe to be original or have merit, as opposed to keeping it internal inside you, you need to put it out in some way where it can get light and feedback, whatever it is. Otherwise you just live always with this idea of possibility, but not knowing if it can manifest. Uh, that is that stings the most for me. Yes. And that's been a lesson I've learned. Whenever I get an idea, the typical mm-hmm. shiny object, squirrel yes. brain entrepreneur is just, I vet everything mm-hmm. more or less yes. in terms of just putting an idea out on social media yes. and seeing yeah. feedback or talking about it on the podcast or mm-hmm. asking my wife or running up the flagpole with like a coach or a mentor or something. Mm-hmm. Um, never squash an idea. The yeah. things that come to be in this world that, add value, add Mm -hmm. impact, turn into major businesses and, Mm -hmm. you know, financial wealth and just fulfillment in general. How they start blows my mind. I know it's amazing, right? They were like the kernel of a kernel of a kernel. (laughs) No, it's, it's amazing. But to your point, it all starts with giving voice to it. And, you know, whoever you give voice to, to to your point, your wife, your coach, a friend, like anything starts with giving voice to something, right? Just like it's the kernel of a possibility. And I think when we fail to give voice to something, it's in some ways it's tragic because it's yeah. like what's preventing us is ego risk. And I was yeah. like, I'm like, okay, what, like, so you want to look at those risks and be like, okay, what's holding me back? And if all the things holding you back, if it's ego risk, then you're like, oh, that's a risk we're taking. Like risk your ego. Cause well said. yeah. Um, one other question I want to get to before we kind of get towards the end. I, sure. I just want to acknowledge you and your work again so far. We're going to have your book, Choose Possibility, down in the video notes and show notes for everybody. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed going through this content and just learning. Um, you. I mean, you've, you've done so much and, um, yeah, so I'll just I'll save the rest of it for everybody. We'll get the book for sure. <laughs> Thanks. But I think where we are in the world right now is a really unique time. And I'm going to beat the dead horse mm-hmm. of we're on the other side of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. It has radically changed life. Mm-hmm. It has radically changed business. Um, all of that aside, I choose and mm-hmm. my audience chooses to to look inside of this and find what is a unique opportunity. Mm-hmm. Where and how am I pivoting? Um, in your experience now, what we've gone through in the professional world this last year and a half, where's the opportunity? Where's the biggest opportunity you're seeing and how has the pandemic in its own unique way provided us an opportunity that otherwise never would have happened? Well, I, I think the biggest opportunity COVID has provided us. And like, I think we can both agree. I'm kind of bummed that, you know, 
we wish we were at the end of it. We're not, mm. you know, like we don't know how the pandemic is going to continue to unfold. But as people said, we're in this, let's call it return to what work mm. moment, right? While the <laughs> pandemic yeah. continues. Um, I think the biggest opportunity is many would people would say, well, COVID has left me more risk averse, but I would say COVID has taught people a tremendous amount about their own agility. Um, because wow. what's happened yeah. is, right. Like the whole book, the whole book is like, Hey, take risk for upside. Right. So, here we are, we're trying to get people to take risk for upside when situations are stable. And I know that I was the CEO of StubHub and, you know, I came into that business 10 years after eBay had acquired it. So I was trying to, I think I'm pretty sure I got that CEO job because eBay wanted to reinvigorate its growth and thinking and think about what the next chapter of StubHub should look like. So they wanted an entrepreneur to do that, right? So here I am and I'm trying to create, you know, like a risk-taking mentality for upside, right? And here we all are. And in our daily lives, we struggle with how to do that. And then along comes this what's called coconut event. Researchers literally call coconut it coconut event. event. I love this I phrase. Heard that. Subways and coconuts. It's like it turns out in the research, like there's certain volatility you can predict in the world and certain you can't. Huh. So you and I could predict what's called a subway event. Like you're gonna go to the subway and it could come between seven fifty eight in the morning or eight oh three. Okay. You can predict that volatility. You can plan for it. You yeah. can say, like, well, I might as well get to the station at seven fifty seven because there's this volatility. Right, so that's called subway type volatility. Coconut volatility is literally the risk that a coconut drops out of the sky, <laughs> hits your head, and, and strikes you dead. And we none of us can predict that, but I researchers, that yeah, but Jeez. researchers would tell us that coconut events happen more often than we think, even though they, we think they'll never happen in our lifetime. Okay, nine eleven was a coconut. You know, there are all these sort of events that we never predicted. So, so the we pandemic, just had you're saying is the a pandemic event. was a coconut event, right? So you're like, well, wait a second, shouldn't a coconut event make us more risk averse? Mm. The irony is when we're trying to avoid harm we become more agile and weirdly we'll take mm. more risks to avoid harm okay. than we might take for upside. So like, let's put that all together. So I told, I gave you the example. I was at StubHub trying to train the company to become more agile. Okay. Two years of like relatively, you know, stable performance and I'm, but everybody's worried about what we're going to lose. So mm. you don't take any risks for the upside. You're like, well, I could lose my revenues. I could, you know, uh, so you don't take any risk. And then along comes, a coconut event called COVID and in a side of a week, 95% of our revenues are gone, right? Like, I mean, it, it was that it was dramatic. I mean, there was, I think there was a wow. point in where we 20,000 events canceled in the same week, the week of March 13th, all the leagues wow. canceled, all the live events rescheduled to canceled. So now like the thing you never predicted would happen in your business happens. Wow. What happens in response? The company goes into crisis survival mode, right? And within Two weeks, we're restructuring the company. I mean, the entire company. And like, I imagine there wasn't an SOP for this. You weren't no, like no. going to page 15 and of no, the crisis No, no, like, I mean, right, right, right. And so like maybe being an entrepreneur helped me because I'd had to manage cash and so on before. But you don't expect a multi-billion dollar business to have to go into survival mode literally overnight. But then what did I witness in the next month? I witnessed an entire company coming together and making mm. risks or taking risks, calculated risks in the most agile manager manner manner to avoid harm. And wow. I can tell you that in that period, people learned a lot about their own agility. Do you know what I mean? You think you're not capable of being agile? I'll tell you what. Yeah. COVID just taught us all what yeah. it means to be agile. Maybe not in a way we would ever have wanted to learn, but now you know something about your agility. Yeah. So if you ask me, what is the opportunity in COVID? I'm like, we all know something about how agile we are. And unfortunately, we had to do that to avoid harm. And we're still, some of us are having to do that. But it also teaches us something of our better, our better ability to be agile when we have choices. Mm. And I think we don't want to lose that. I like that. I like that. That's, that's the mentality we like around here. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it really kind of leads me to my final question. Um, and that is, 
how do you live a life ever forward? Understanding the background of the show and this kind of lens through which we look here uh, on this platform, I think what you just said was a mm-hmm. great possible representation. Mm-hmm. But when you hear those words, what does that mean to you? Uh, well, it, I think whatever forward means to me is a phrase I've often used, and it's it's the way I judge myself, mm. which is I always say to other people, like, put progress over perfection. Because like for me, the standard of being perfect is impossible. It is impossible. Like if you went through my life and asked everybody who'd worked with me or lived with me, my children, my husband, you know, uh, employees, coworkers, people who've managed me, I'm going to tell you, they will have a long list of things, (laughs) a long list that is absolutely true about all of the ways I drive them crazy. Um, And I say that actually in a very intellectually honest way. Like that's why I hate it when people are like, you're awesome or whatever. Because I'm like, "Uh, actually, uh, I have a lot of going on too. But Wait, you mean you're human? Yeah, interesting. But but I but I mean I mean that but I do think that the standard I've given myself because I think it's the standard of acceptance I got from my parents is there was never an expectation of perfection. There was there was only acceptance of who I was, which as you know creates a lot of possibility. And mm-hmm. I've talked about that I found that in workplaces as well and with certain leaders and this expectation and and in my case I was a driver and I was very intense and I continue to be an acceptance of my passion and just like, and like just that, that progress was the standard of which I was going to measure myself and be measured. And so when I knew I was never measured against the standard of perfection and that that was a lens I put on myself, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of forgiveness I give myself even now, which is like, okay, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get perfect. By the way, my next 10 choices, I can't tell you which ones are going to work out. I can't tell you if the board list is going to be, which is, you know, a company that I'm a founder of. I can't tell you if it's going to be a multi-billion dollar startup or if it's going to, you know, fall back into the sea. I don't know the answer, but all I know is I'm going to wake up every day and try and make progress. And I think that, so that's my ever forward life, but I think that I have been the beneficiary of, you know, a family and, and even today, and friends and people who who forgive me my sins, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. now I've learned like to be like okay with it, to be like okay, it's I'm not going to be perfect, yeah. but I'm going to wake up every day and try and make progress. And I um, I feel lucky that the people in my life give me that level of acceptance. I love that response. Thank you so much. And it it reminds me so much uh, of interactions with my my family growing up, my, especially mm-hmm. my father. And I can think back to. The only time I would ever say that I got in trouble or there were mm-hmm. repercussions mm-hmm. for what many people would define as a failure yeah. was when my father would ask me, hey, how how well did you prepare for this? How did you go into this situation? <laughs> um, did you study for this test that you bombed or did you yeah. completely throw it off? Or did, right. did you do all your chores or right. did you like try to half-ass everything? It was only then right. did my dad and I have a problem. What's interesting, because yeah. he didn't hold you to the standard of perfection, but he held you to the standard of like preparedness, it sounds like. And yeah. like, and I don't know, just like putting everything into yeah. into everything you do. Yeah, truly. That's a pretty good standard. Yeah, thanks, Dad. <laughs> uh, yeah, you helped me out way more than I ever realized or I know, thought about right? as a kid growing up, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. well, like that's the gift of our parents. <laughs> I'm like, hopefully one day our kids will look at us and be like, oh yeah, that was a gift of my parents. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this has been a gift. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, And um, I I can't wait to share this out with my audience and everybody. You definitely want to get the book, Choose Possibility. Uh, I'll have it linked down in the show notes and you can always get, is there an audible? Did you do it? There is an audible. I actually narrated narrated it because someone told me, I I hate hearing the sound of my own voice, but somebody told me that 
readers really prefer it when the author reads the book. So we yes, do. I yes. do. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I'll say if you want to get the Audible version, you guys can check out. Um, we'll have a free link for you. Get a free 30-day trial. Make it count. Get to Kinder's book here. Um, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this spotlight on this podcast that we are so excited about. We hope it supports you and gives you inspiration and even more access to growth in your day-to-day life. In the meantime, we will see you next week for a regularly scheduled U-Turn podcast episode. Can't wait to see you there. Thanks again.